0: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
1: All right, yeah, I know.
2: Hello, welcome to Intelligent Speech in 2021. I don't do a lot of these, um, and the whole point of Intelligent Speech is for me to indulge my natural state of curiosity when I bump into interesting and fascinating people. So because of lockdown, quarantine, I didn't bump into too many interesting people last year. Uh, But living online, occasionally you do. And I was introduced by a mutual friend to Erin Brown, who I jokingly call my cousin, and Cyrus Rodell, who have embarked on quite the journey. Not only are they a happily committed couple, uh, but they've decided to leave their native United States to go to Tunisia to dig deep into the Tunisian revolution, the revolution that started the Arab Spring, which also heralded in a a wave of liberal hope uh, throughout the Arab world in uh, 2010. We're going to ask them what happened to that hope, um, why exactly this topic so fascinates them, and uh, what we can expect from their podcast. Hi guys, how are you?
0: Hey, we're good.
2: Hi, how are you doing? Not too bad. Now, just off mic, I said you pair are much braver than me. Uh when I decided to go and traverse the world uh in 2014-15, I didn't have the I didn't have the hutzpah to go to um a bit of the world where I didn't speak the language. Uh, what was it about Tunisia that uh pulled the pair of you there?
1: Uh well, I mean, I think part of it is that we speak the language. Um, I I studied Arabic uh, through undergrad and grad school uh, and spent time in the Arab world, although not in Tunisia before.
0: Cyrus is being generous when he says that we speak the language. I am a native English speaker and my second language is actually Russian, but my third language is French and it is pretty janky. Uh, I learned it when I was Studying cheesemaking in in the Vosges, uh, in the mountains in eastern France, a few years ago. So my French is informed entirely by barnyard speak, but between the two of us, it gets us pretty far in Tunisia.
2: Wow, <laughs> already I don't feel intellectually capable of really continuing this interview, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Let's go back to to 2010, and as I said in in my intro, the Arab Spring started in. Tunis um give the listener um who maybe isn't aware of what exactly happened at the end of 2010 go over those basic facts and let's just deal with um the thing which has actually pulled you both to Tunisia and then we're going to have a conversation which is going to go all over the place And I don't know where it's going to end, other than you're going to say that you're creating uh, a podcast series off the back of the Tunisian revolution. So let's take us back first to the end of 2010.
0: The end of 2010, in December of 2010, a young man whose name was Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire in a town in the middle of nowhere in Tunisia. He'd been a fruit seller, kind of one of these people living on the economic edge. So he'd work overnights at a at the local grocery store to earn, you know, a couple of dollars each day. Then he'd buy produce from the local farmers and spend all day selling them in a little fruit cart on a corner of the main drag in his town. One afternoon, a policewoman and her partner showed up and they told him that he needed to move because he was bringing down the curb appeal of a town that, has no curb appeal. <laughs> uh, basically, they were hustling him for a fi- or for a bribe. And he paid the bri- They took his fruits. He left. He came back a couple days later. And she came back. And this time, they took his scales. And that was really, I think, sort of the last straw for him. It was the only piece of equipment he actually needed to run his business. And without it, he wasn't going to feed his family. And he called her a name that, you know, you can't say on the radio sort of thing. Uh, and she slapped him. And it was kind of this moment where it all boiled over. He sort of stormed off to a bunch of different government offices, which it turns out were just kind of across the street and no one would listen to him. And so it's not really clear what happened. But outside the governor's office, he ended up with enough lighter fluid on him that when he held up his lighter and flicked the wheel of it in sort of this gesture of of defiance, he lit himself on fire and he died. And the fallout from that, his death resonated with so many young people across Tunisia who were just really living on the economic edge. They couldn't find work. They couldn't find decent jobs. A lot of them were super well-educated, but couldn't end up, in roles other than like, you know, minor service jobs or working in the tourism industry.
2: I'm presuming, though, that um, there were other political voices um, in Tunisia at that time talking about the the relative stagnation of the Tunisian economy. Why was it that it was actually that was the spark that uh, lit the Tunisian revolution, would you say?
1: There's lots of reasons. I think it's hard to pin down exactly why it was that incident. The main cities are all on the Mediterranean Sea. And then as you get into the mountains and the deserts of the interior, there's a lot more of the depressed areas where the economy isn't as good. There isn't as much development. There's much less opportunities. Um, And there had been various protests throughout a lot of those cities uh, for the last couple of years leading up to that. There also had been other incidents of people lighting themselves on fire. There had been more than one before Mohamed Bouazizi. So it's hard to know exactly why it was that one. I think part of it was that in the town of Sidi Bouzid, there were lots of local actors who were interested in oppositional politics and in organizing. And I think they helped organize a lot of the protests. And then I think that there were enough disenchanted young people in Sidi Bouzid that then became interested once this event happened and for their creative movement that spread. But one of the things that was really complicated about the Tunisian revolution is that even the like opposition parties or the, you know, the main, the main union, a lot or the civil rights organizations a lot of these organizations that were supposed to be advocating for political change the head offices had all been completely co-opted by the regime but the local branches still had some people who were interested in doing some oppositional politics and so while the main offices were very late to join the side of the revolution all these local branches and local offices in these depressed towns had people who were willing to organize and willing to be leadership in the demonstrations that were happening.
0: Yeah, and I think one other factor that sort of made that moment the right moment was within the 18 months prior to Mohamed Bouazizi setting himself on fire, more Tunisians came online and got access to social platforms that really helped spread it from all these tiny, small, depressed towns in the interior to the coasts mm. and you know oftentimes the arab spring is sort of like the twitter revolution and i and i don't think that's an accurate portrayal this was decades worth of both economic depression and like desperation mixed with decades worth of of social activism that kind of all coalesced together but twitter helped a lot yeah. um it, yeah
2: it's it's interesting that you say that this wasn't just a Twitter revolution, but that's definitely how it was kind of sold to us at the time that this was shown us the power of decentralised networks, wasn't it? That the fact that uh, for the first time in human history, that uh, millions of people could communicate with each other and could have activism of which governments couldn't control. And we've seen by the end of the decade, that is not at all the case. Let's stay back in, in 2010, but let's move from Tunisia to maybe uh, the hallowed shores of America. What were you guys doing at that point? And how were you following, if you were following at all, uh, the the goings-on in Tunisia back then?
1: At the end of 2010, I was finishing up my undergraduate degree and I was applying for graduate programs. Um, Like I mentioned, I did, but my undergraduate was in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. I was applying for a Middle Eastern studies master's program. At the time, I was more focused on the Arab East rather than North Africa. And I think I didn't quite, I didn't really catch, like I think a lot of people catch what was going on in Tunisia until almost the very end when the revolution had really taken off. So I I can't say that I was some... Early adopter yeah. who like knew what was going on. The next day, it wasn't until the revolution was almost over in Tunisia that I started to notice what was going on.
0: And and to be fair, the revolution in Tunisia took just under a month. It took twenty eight days from the day that Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire, so December seventeenth, twenty ten, and Ben Ali fled on January fourteenth, twenty eleven. Nobody and and really nobody took notice until the thirteenth and the fourteenth. So a lot of people missed it. A lot of people missed
1: it. Yeah. I mean, I think for research for our project, I like we've gone back through and it's really not until the last days and sometimes even after the revolution that major American media outlets picked up anything from Tunisia. Yeah. Um, I mean, but after that, I'm I, between watching television and getting online and seeing things on Facebook, I was pretty closely following the rest of the uprisings and revolutions that were well, happening in other countries. And
0: what was interesting is later that summer, you were in Jordan on the Syrian border, right?
1: Yeah, so after my first, uh, so I did a year of, of grad school um, from 2011 to 2012, and then in between, kind of in the like summer four months I had, I uh, was taking Arabic courses at the University of Yarmouk, which is an Urbid in, in Jordan. Uh, and Yarmouk is not far from the Syrian border. And so, and that by that summer, that was the summer of 2012. And that had been, at that point, Syria had really devolved from a protest movement and it was already turning into a civil war. And so there were lots of refugees pouring into town. Um, I had some friends who studied at university with me, some Arab friends, but they were living in Ramtha, which was just on the border. And they would send me images of like, the, the planes overhead and the shells and things because they were like just 50 kilometers. I'm yeah. terrible at distances, but like 50 kilometers from one of the main cities that was the center of the uprising in Syria. So,
0: yeah. yeah. I was not following it closely. I was a little baby journalist um, at the time and was more of a U.S. breaking news junkie. Um, and And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, I think Cyrus said it, like, by the time people knew what was happening with the Arab Spring, Tunisia had already happened. And everyone was looking at Egypt. Everyone was looking at Yemen and Syria and Libya. Honestly, like, I'm not entirely sure if I remembered that Tunisia had a revolution until basically until the day that uh, I realized Cyrus was plotting to make a podcast about the Tunisian revolution, (laughs)
2: And, and when was that exactly then, Cyrus? When did you decide that, you know, all, all this um, learning of Arabic and immersing yourself in uh, Middle Eastern culture that, you know, is all pointing you in the direction of making this podcast?
1: So after I graduated from grad school, I started working um, with a community organization in Brooklyn, New York, that was working with Arab and Muslim immigrants and refugees and helping them get set up in the States after they've moved over here. Um, And, you know, I had a friend at the time who would always ping, like, send me questions whenever he saw something in the news about the Middle East or anything like that, be like, okay, like, that's what I heard in the news, what's really going on? And so I would do that, like, that was one of the things that I did with his friend. Uh, And eventually he was like, you know what, you should do a podcast about this stuff. And that kind of got the spark in my head. And we tried, I tried with him to do it for a little while and it kind of didn't work. I tried on my own and it didn't really work. So it was something I had been like toying with and playing with uh, and it never really just got off the ground.
0: Until, dot, 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 uh, I came home one day and he was on his computer with a spreadsheet open. Cyrus is not a spreadsheet kind of guy, And I was like, what are you doing? And he like slammed his laptop shut. And I was like, I mean, it's not, it's not like you were watching dirty videos. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And I was like, what are you up to? And he's like, oh, I was thinking about doing like a, I'm doing some research thinking about maybe doing like this podcast of the history of Tunisia, you know and Cyrus is a big history podcast buff. And me being the nosy journalist, uh, I was like, ooh, tell me more. Uh, And then I sort of was like, maybe you should, maybe we should take our like spring vacation and go to Tunisia and see what it's like. Maybe we can talk to some people. And the more we got talking about it, the more it became clear that we wanted to just jump ship and go. I had gone full-time freelance earlier that year and I could work from just about anywhere. And Cyrus, I think had kind of grown out of his organization a little bit. So he quit his job, and we packed up our apartment, and we went to Tunisia for four months. And uh, instead of talking to a couple people, we interviewed close to forty different individuals for this podcast. But and it really, the podcast tells the story through their voices, through their stories, not just our research.
2: Has there been any difficulty, any kind of governmental difficulty in interviewing people about? the Tunisian revolution. I must admit, I don't know an awful lot about the state of Tunisian politics or about censorship or about freedom of speech. So tell us about that. Were people just bursting to talk or were they a little bit reticent?
0: Yeah, I mean, people were really willing to have a conversation with us. You know, Tunisia is the only country that had a revolution that ended in an actual functioning democracy. Um, And so there's just a really incredibly rich civil society here. People are bursting at the seams to, to be creative, to speak freely, to be activists and to advocate for things. And so honestly, I was a little nervous about us being able to find enough sources. Tunisia's a village. And once we met one person and told them what we were up to and asked to hear their story, it kind of snowballed from there. And we got connected with people sort of all across the political spectrum in, in cities and towns all over the country. And it was a really amazing experience. Um, Tunisian people are extremely generous, generous with their time, generous with their thoughts, generous with, with their stories. So we were really lucky in that way.
1: In the spirit of transparency, though, uh, I I should mention that there is one get that we wanted that we didn't. Um, (laughs) So an organization that played a big and complicated role in the revolution. um, There's a giant union that all the other unions in in the country are affiliated with, and it's the General Tunisian Workers Union. The acronym is in French, though, so it's the UGTT. Uh, I spent countless hours in the UGTT offices, having conversations both with just union guys who were hanging around the office on whatever business they had, and also like union officials. And I was, I had conversations with them and we were talking to them and was desperately trying to get somebody to speak on record and on tape with us. And it never happened.
0: Yeah. I joked that Cyrus moved into the UGTT for about half a month and and still couldn't come back with the tape. So,
1: so that that is one that we're we feel a little bad about. But other than that, it was pretty easy to to get people to talk and to have have those conversations and have those interviews.
0: The one interview that required the most government approval or government that there was the most government interference was actually we have the very first interview with former U.S. ambassador to Tunisia, Robert Godek, who was here just before Ben Ali fell. And uh, it took us, I think, six months with the State Department to get the approval to, to do the interview, so.
1: Yeah, which is opposed to, like, we interviewed some Tunisian MPs for it, and literally we just had to, like, call them, and they put us put our name on the list and got press passes and were cleared through the security at the parliament to go interview people in the parliament, so. Yeah. Much but, but, less interference there than in the U.S. But very ironic. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices.
2: question for you, Cyrus. Um, I have a a decent understanding of the history of kind of most um, Arab, Berber, North African, Middle Eastern countries, decent history. Um, But why do you think that it was Tunisia that not only had the revolution, but actually had some kind of meaningful change as opposed to Syria, where the war, to all intents and purposes is still dragging on, or let's say, another one of, uh, let's say, the Gulf Emirates or kingdoms or, or wherever, or Yemen. What was it about Tunisia, do you think, was the reason why the protest but also make effective, lasting change? Um, I think that there are a couple of reasons.
1: Uh, I think it's very complicated. I'll try to like just do the most important ones. Um, and I think that this applies both to Tunisia and Egypt. Tunisia and Egypt were, have been at the forefront ever since the 19th century in terms of creating a centralized modern state. And so if you look at just the history of both the local efforts before colonization, uh, the way that colonial rule was more than happy to Piggyback off that centralization that already happened, and then post independence, um, there there was a regime the the regime of the dictator Ben Ali. But there's also a Tunisian state that existed outside of that regime. In a way that some of these other countries like Libya, it just didn't exist. So You get rid of Gaddafi, and there was no real state in Libya outside of the Gaddafi regime. So I think that's one of the reasons why it was more successful. I think, honestly, one of the reasons, Tunisia was never framed this way or talked about this way. I think one of the reasons it happened first in Tunisia was because it was one of the more oppressive countries. I think there was a big mismatch between a country that had high education levels compared to, the there were lots of economic problems, but regionally had a more robust middle class than a lot of other countries, and yet still had some of the most the worst political repression. So I think that that disconnect and that tension made it ripe for revolution. And then I think for that success, another factor, and Syria is a great counter example. Everyone in the region and outside the region had an interest in what was going on in Syria, in Libya, and Yemen, all of these other, not just regional powers, but Turkey, Russia, Europe, the United States, they had an interest in what was going on. And so they backed various players. Tunisia, just in terms of the geo, its geopolitical situation, doesn't matter in the same way. And so there's nobody there to egg anyone on to a more confrontational course. And so at the end of the day, when there's nobody supplying money or arms or anything like that to the various political factions, they just don't have the depth of support to try those more confrontational risky approaches. And I think that that just led them to compromise more often and work things out more often.
0: And and I think another important point is that the Tunisian society is incredibly homogenous. There's not a lot of different factors or factions. There's not different sects per se. Like So there wasn't Anything where once the dictator was gone, people sort of fractured into their sort of, you know, different factions. And I think that really helped with the the stability of the translation or transition. Yeah. There we go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that goes back to that. Like, I mean, you have since the 19th century. This attempt to build like a centralized Tunisian state and a functioning society that like a functioning civil society, a modern like a real modernization program that hasn't existed in a lot of the other
2: countries. Yeah. Interesting. And I suppose also that the collapse of central authority in Libya meant that there was no outside interference, even from Libya or kind of Algeria, of, of which there could have been um, if this had happened, let's say, 15 years beforehand. So it's, uh, it was, it's kind of quite, quite interesting for to, paint that kind of picture of the geopolitical lack of weight of Tunisia that the rest of the world can just say, eh, uh, a type of thing. One of the things which fascinates me being a student of history is why some revolutions um, not only succeed and fail, but what is the tipping point? What is that thing that makes um, leaders flee or for leaders to stiffen their spines and go no and to face down insurgency. so you talked about the tunisian revolution and um, and also we talked about the civil war in uh, in syria um, what would you say let's have both both of you to answer here what would you say is the the quintessential tipping point of any revolution why change happens or why um, the powers of conservatism can actually push back? Yeah, I mean, that is a, a good question. Um,
1: so there's there's a moment that I feel is the tipping point in the Tunisian revolution. And I feel like the tipping point in the Tunisian revolution is was three days between January 8th and January 10th um, in 2011. There had been some other instances and some other deaths, but at that instance, it was clear that the regime had ordered live fire to be used on demonstrators in a lot of these interior towns and cities where people were protesting. You know, I mean, we talked a little bit about like the Twitter revolution, how that's a little bit of a like simple gloss on what happened, but like when that happened and when Tunisians and other parts of the country saw what the regime had done to other Tunisians because of people on the ground who had taken photos and people on the ground who had taken videos and because of the Tunisian like activist media people and bloggers and journalists who had gotten the footage and were putting it online, getting it to Al Jazeera. When Tunisians saw that, that's when it became less about, disgruntled people in poor regions and became a national movement on the other side of the coin i think the other flip side to what was the turning point was when it became clear that the rest of like the the army the other security forces were not going to try that again when the protests were in this the capital they were outside the ministry of the interior and it became clear that Ben Ali didn't have the support of the army, didn't have the support of the security forces, and that's when he fled. And I think that's the difference. I think that when it got to that point in Syria, there were still people willing to stick by the regime.
0: yeah um, you know, I think you, you ask about the sort of tipping point and and it's it's different everywhere. And if there was one simple form of uh, you know one one kind of juju that that made a revolution succeed, I think you know we'd see a lot more successful revolutions but something that i i learned covering the the revolution in ukraine i think it speaks to cyrus's point which is there is a tacit contract there is a tacit understanding of what kind of force the police or the internal security forces or whatever the army can use on its own citizens right right if police show up to a protest and they beat you bloody with a truncheon That's technically kosher. Um, Would that be halal,
2: because we're talking about Tunisia?
0: No, I mean, like, I think it's it's Sorry,
2: weak attempt at (laughs) humour.
0: You're fine. (laughs) The kosher joke. Um,
1: Yeah, you're right, it's halal. It's Uh, (laughs) halal,
0: yes. But the second a regime uses deadly force on its citizens, I think it galvanizes something for people. And then the question is just whether or not the regime is willing to continue to do that. And I think Ben Ali didn't have the will to power to do that. I don't think Viktor Yanukovych did, um, but there was, I mean, there was a day where snipers shot into the crowds in in the Maidan in Kyiv. And that was the turning point where, where then the next day, tens of thousands of people came out. Um, And so I think it's just a question of whether or not you have a dictator who's willing to violate the contract that says, you can beat your citizens to a pulp, you can arrest them, you can torture them, you can do sort of whatever, but the second you start just shooting, it's over.
1: I'm not in the business of predicting revolutions or predicting when a revolution will succeed or not. And I think part of the reason it's so hard is because you don't advertise beforehand that you're not going to follow orders from the dictator, right? That is not something you say, you know, just so you know, president so-and-so I'm, I'm only going to follow orders up to this point. And if it goes beyond that, I'm, I'm just not going to follow through. Uh, And so I think that's why it's so hard to know when a revolution is going to succeed or when a revolution is going to happen, because it's based on whether or not people are going to cross a line. And nobody tells you where their line is
2: beforehand. Yeah. How is it working together? Had you worked together before? You guys have done something which um, lots of couples would like to go and um, devote a certain amount of time in another bit of the world together, you know, seen as a break, a holiday, a vacation. But, but it's not that, is it? So how is it working with each other? Who is the biggest pain to work with?
0: I'll raise my hand. I'm probably the bigger pain to work with. Cyrus is extremely congenial, and I'm a bit of a perfectionist. When we left to do this, I was a little bit nervous about what it would be like because we hadn't really worked on anything together, anything big. We hadn't even been married a year when we left for Tunisia. And um, I love it. It's been so great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that we, um, we have very different approaches uh, and very different ideas sometimes. But I think that in general, I mean, there's always, I think in general that those are complementary differences rather than contradictory differences.
0: Yeah, you know? we have skills that really mesh well together. So like Cyrus is like the research engine, right? He's, I, I joke that like Cyrus's main form of exercise is curling really heavy nonfiction books uh, from his lap up to reading height. And I'm more of the writer, the more more of the like production person, like the technical person. So it works really well. Like he'll, you know, when he did all the research for it and as we were putting together episodes, he'd do the sort of historical outline and then I'd pull our different characters in and yeah, it's great. I wish that we could find a way to do this all the time, but I will say the pandemic has made it a little bit harder because now we are, before we moved back to Tunisia, we were living in a very small apartment in New York city together. And that's just hard on anyone.
1: Even people who uh, work well together and enjoy each other's company also enjoy space. And I think that everyone (laughs) has realized in 2020 that space uh, was a
2: luxury that we didn't even know we had. How many episodes uh, can we expect in your series? Because I know it's a limited series. You're not like me saying I'm doing 10 American presidents and trying to like stretch that forever. Um, How many series, uh, how many episodes can we expect? And dare I say it, uh, what comes next? I mean, so we've got, we
1: have got eight episodes uh, planned out. Um, eight
0: episodes plus an epilogue. Cause we got to kind of like, like our eight episodes get us from, we start in Sidi Bouzid with Mohammed Bouazizi setting himself on fire. We have to go back a little bit. So you get, you know, the context, but really the last episode ends just after the revolution with the very first election. We could have gone on for forever uh, with the election and the building the constitution, but we we gave ourselves a hard limit. But we did realize that especially this year, we needed an epilogue because we'd seen a lot of coverage about Tunisia where uh, you know news organizations who hadn't been here in 10 years came back and were like, oh, look, 10 years later and everything's still terrible. And a lot of that is because of coronavirus, and so we made a, we're making a little epilogue that that kind of gives the the lay of the land now.
1: I, yeah, exactly. I think, and not to say like it has been a difficult and challenging ten years in Tunisia since then, and a lot of it's been complicated. I don't think, I mean, I think looking back in history, I don't think there's ever a revolution where things weren't complicated afterwards. Uh, that's the way that these these things go. But I think even, I mean, we had started this a couple of, like when in we started yeah. into the 2019, I think we felt like we got a lot more nuanced assessments of the revolution. Um, and now a lot of people here who are coming in just 20 years after, I think we're getting less nuanced assessments. Uh, but I, I, a lot of that is because people are frustrated and angry, because they've also been in lockdown for a year. Um, 2020 has not been fun anywhere in the world.
0: Yeah. And to answer your question about what comes next, the reason why we moved back to Tunis is because I start work in a few weeks as a full-time foreign correspondent uh, covering North Africa and the Sahel for The National, which is uh, an English language outlet based out of Abu Dhabi.
2: Wow. congratulations so my, my next line was going to be are you revolution chasers is it going to be in the next time there's a revolution somewhere in one of the four corners of the globe you're going to go haha cyrus this is where we're going next come on aaron well, we're off <laughs> we tried uh so when we when people
1: talk about the arab spring and the revolutions the uprisings they talk like it started in 2010 and ended in 2011 but just in 2019 two other Arab governments fell because of protests. And so when we came to Tunisia uh, last first time last year in 2019, that was right when massive protests started in Algeria demanding the resignation of President Bouteflika. And we tried really hard, so hard. to get <laughs> visas so that we could go to Algeria and just be there firsthand. Uh, but Algeria visas are much harder to get than Tunisian visas. We also
0: like hinted very uh, not so subtly to a friend of ours whose father uh, was in the diplomatic mission in Sudan, that we would love to be able to try and get into Sudan when the revolution was happening. And there was just no way. This is not my first revolution. So I actually covered another revolution uh, that took a, a, a big Page out of the book of the Tunisian, you know, out of the Tunisian playbook, and that was uh, the Maidanese legacy of protests in Ukraine in 2014. So while I don't think we'll be revolution chasers, we we thought long and hard about if we could do, a you know, a podcast series of or you know, a season about every revolution in in uh, in the Arab Spring. The reality is Tunisia is one of the only places that we could do that. We couldn't just move to Cairo and start talking to people about the revolution and expect to stay out of jail. You know, we could maybe do the Syrian revolution with people who are in exile, but is that the story of the Syrian revolution? I often thought that like maybe we should do one season about the return of Vladimir Putin as one of the fallouts of the Arab Spring. But again, I don't know if I wanna like move back to Russia. I used to live there and like poke people Uh, about Vladimir Putin's return to power in order to control Syria. So we'll see.
2: You have to remind us, or at least tell us, because I'm actually asked you what the the name of the podcast is and when does it launch.
0: Revolution One, the story of the Tunisian uprising. That's the full title.
2: And the first episode will be on January
1: 14th, which will be 10 years from the day uh, when Ben Ali fled Tunisia.
2: Fantastic. Aaron and Cyrus, thank you for joining me. On my virtual couch uh, for my very first uh, intelligent Speech Forward Slash Agora Talks Meets. Forget what we call it on Agora um, for 2021. Thanks, Thank guys. Thanks for having us.